using philosophy to understand our city and to change it. This is Phi on New York, the podcast of the Gotham Philosophical Society, with your host, Joe Beale. Welcome back to Fire New York. I'm your host, Joe Beale. In today's episode, we take up the topics of food, hunger, and justice. These issues are intimately related. Consider that rather early in Plato's Republic, when Socrates lays out his vision of the just city, it is with a measure of pride that he notes that his contented citizens will enjoy desserts of figs, pulse, and beans, and will roast myrtle berries and acorns by the fire. Socrates' interlocutor, Glaucon, however, finds this unacceptable. What Socrates has described as a city not fit for people, but for pigs. In any city worth its salt, Glaucon insists, cakes and pastries need to be readily available. For millions of New Yorkers in 2021, the question of food justice is much more pressing than having fancy desserts. Roughly 2 million people in this city are struggling with hunger and face considerable difficulties trying to feed themselves and their loved ones. This tragic state of affairs obtained before the pandemic, of course, but the last year has exacerbated the problem in a number of ways. As many people have lost income and many children have faced reduced access to schools, hunger has only grown. Now as the city starts looking to take steps to return to a sense of normalcy, there is a growing insistence that any normal that includes so much hunger is unacceptable. Calls for increased food security are being replaced by demands for food sovereignty and food justice. But what do these terms mean? To help me get a better grasp of the issues and the concepts involved, I speak with the philosopher Samantha Knoll. As she helps clarify matters, Dr. Knoll takes us on a history tour of food and justice in the city that shows how some of the challenges we are facing have origins in the birth of the modern conception of the city itself. In the second part of the episode, I get a report of what's happening on the ground from Stephen Grimaldi, the executive director of the New York Common Pantry. He tells me what the past year has been like and shares his hopes for a future where his organization and its services are no longer needed. Up first, Dr. Samantha Knoll. Welcome, Dr. Samantha Knoll, to Phi on New York. I'm very pleased to have you here. Could you introduce yourself uh, to our listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, my name, as he said, is uh, Dr. Samantha Knoll. I'm currently an assistant professor at Washington State University. And my work primarily focuses on understanding the social and value impacts of local food movements. Um, although I am hailing from the West Coast today, um, I'm very much an East Coast uh, woman, having grown up in Philadelphia and having a family in New York. So New York City is near and dear to my heart, most definitely. Well, thank you. New York City, like sure many other places around the country, um, are suffering from serious food-related issues, particularly exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, pre-existing, but serious, becoming considerably worse uh, since then with uh, unemployment. Uh, food security issues have uh, just 
become increasingly acute. Um, recently, there was a mayoral candidate forum trying to address some of these issues. Um, and listeners to that would have encountered a number of different terms, uh, including food security, insecurity, um, food justice, food deserts, food sovereignty. Um, could you help us first understand some of these terms and, and how to place them in a way that we can understand more deeply what the issues are, what we should be focusing on, and how we might be able to improve the circumstances we're in? Oh, most definitely. And um, it's interesting because there's a, a quite a bit of literature on each of these terms, and there's still a contested nature to some of them. However, uh, the, very generally, many of these terms uh, can be understood um, in a succinct manner. So food security, for example, largely focuses on access to various foodstuffs. Uh, do you have access to enough nutrition uh, that you need in order to um, live a good life daily, right? And if you do not have access to enough nutrition, or in the case of global definitions, uh, enough um, uh, resources, such as monetary resources to purchase uh, said nutrition, uh, then you're seen as food insecure. And neighborhoods within oftentimes urban contexts uh, that suffer from food insecurity, AKA, as we talked about, uh, not having access to enough uh, nutrition or, or uh, fresh food stuff, say that three times fast, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, are often labeled um, as food deserts. Although this again is a contested term. Uh, so this is just denoting a geographical area where there's a large amount of food insecurity, where people are not getting enough to eat. Right. Now, when we talk about food justice and food sovereignty, both of these terms in the United States context, at least, are often used interchangeably. However, uh, they do come from uh, different roots, uh, so to speak. So food justice, for example, uh, largely came about as an offshoot of the environmental justice movement um, in the United States, where communities uh, we're pushing back against the unequal distribution of benefits and harms associated with environmental policy and decision-making. So where we place, say, a, um, a trash incinerator, uh, for example, will directly impact local communities. And if, these, if the benefits of said trash incinerator um, are being um, enjoyed by a wider population, but a... Um, traditionally or historically marginalized groups, such as a, a Latinx community and African-American community are facing the realities of having this in their neighborhood, they're shouldering a larger amount, a larger amount of the harms associated uh, with this public facility. So that idea was then extended to the food system. Are benefits and harms of the food system being equally distributed across all of the groups that make up society or our historically marginalized communities shouldering more of the risk associated uh, with food systems. And part of this is distribution, right? So this connects to uh, the issue of food deserts as well. In contrast, food, uh, food sovereignty is, uh, came out of the global push against industrialized agriculture 
and the view that uh, global food systems were, were pushing food products onto various communities around the world. And this is part of the reason why sovereignty is part of that name, whereas uh, food justice is focusing on distributive harms. Food sovereignty is like, we should have the choice. We should be able to choose what crops we're growing, what crops we're eating, and how these crops are being introduced into the market. Hence, food sovereignty is very much focused on in the, in the global movement. Now, with this being said, both food justice and food sovereignty in the United States uh, the reason why I argue they're interchangeable, or I use them oftentimes interchangeable in, in an interchangeable fashion, is because in this context, distributive justice is important for both and recognition, food choice, enabling your community to um, make choices that impact your larger food systems are uh, oftentimes uh, pushed by both uh, food justice and food sovereignty advocates. Now, this this term, particularly food sovereignty, um, I suspect that there are many people who this will be an unfamiliar term. But in preparing for this conversation with you, reading your work, uh, it's clear that food sovereignty is not actually a new idea, uh, particularly with respect to uh, uh, food systems within the city itself and in New York in particular. Would you like to speak to that? Oh, most definitely. We we often think of food sovereignty and food uh, food security and even food justice as new terms coming out of you know 1970s 1980s movements such as the environmental justice movement. Uh, however, uh, these are much older ideas. Now, for example, uh, the choices and control that communities had over uh, their food systems. So if they had a broader um, array of choices, such as uh, what animals they could raise um, within particular context, whether or not they could actually <laughs> introduce animals into the urban context, uh, what farming systems they could adopt or not adopt, these all directly impact the food security of individual communities. So if, we've, if we go back to the birth of the modern city, for example, individual communities, especially immigrant communities in the context of New York City, had a good amount of food sovereignty. They had control over what foods they were um, producing um, up until the point where many communities actually raised livestock in New York. And when I tell people this, they're like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> you know, there were pigs running down, you know, Madison Avenue <laughs> and it's like in Central Park. And it's like, yes, um, the um, many um, immigrant communities, such as um, Irish communities, German communities, African-American communities, oftentimes relied on raising livestock as part of their overall food security profile, so to speak, to ensure uh, that um, individual communities had access to food, good food. And it was only through, it's like, where do we want to start here? <laughs> you know, it was only through impacts that occurred with the Industrial uh, Revolution when modern cities were changing 
uh, industries were changing rapidly, uh, populations boomed. New York, for example, like doubled, tripled their population in a very short period of time. Uh, that we had uh, calls to change the way that we were producing food in city contact. And so the result of this was almost a, well, it was actually a, a class war where the upper classes who had separated themselves from food production, they oftentimes relied on the newfangled thing called the market. And nowadays we're like, bodegas are everywhere, you know? <laughs> How are these newfangled? <laughs> you know? But back in the day, you know, when markets were sort of um, being introduced into the context, of large swaths of people did not have to produce their own food, and so they instead could purchase it. And so you had this separation between people who had the luxury to purchase their own food and communities who had to produce their own food to ensure that food requirements were met. And so what resulted then was a separation of the upper classes from any sort of activity concerning agriculture. And in fact, it was looked down upon uh, to raise animals, to dirty your hands in uh, producing um, any sort of uh, fruit product or any sort of vegetable product. And, and we did have very active greenhouse operations as well um, in um, urban environments uh, during that time period. So this isn't just about animal agriculture. And then... <laughs> this, well, this is a history lesson that I'm sure many people uh, have not, you know, have not received. Um, so you, you, meant, you mentioned uh, in your, in one of your articles, the Piggery War of 1859, which was something I was completely unfamiliar with. So, I mean, I think this is, you know, it's a fascinating history and it raises a, a bunch of different, uh, you know, different questions. Um, you know, one is the upper classes moving away from the production of their own food and purchasing it at a market. Would that be characterized as um, of forfeiting their own food sovereignty or is there wealth? Does that compensate for it? So that's a question. And, and then a more broader question, this, this development of the modern city and the moving away, and I, I want to hear more of what you, what you say about this, but does, are there benefits to this? You know, was, is the city a healthier environment? Yeah, and, and these are all very good questions. And we could argue that, you know, the upper classes, at least during this time period, were forfeiting their own food sovereignty. But I mean, they had good reasons to do so as well. I mean, time is money, right? And, you know, um, having or at least outsourcing uh, various tasks so that you could focus on, you know, uh, banking or, or whatnot, whatever you're doing, uh, factory, uh, running a factory or, you know, any sort of the, any sort of task that you actually uh, receive more money uh, to pursue. And we even see that today in the, uh, the in the um, self-help books where it's like, oh, you're burning yourself out. Well, why don't you get a housekeeper or whatnot? Or why don't you uh, take um, sort of outsource some of uh, the various labor that you're doing so that you have more time to focus on uh, 
you know what you're being employed to do. And, and so part of the cost of this initial push, and it's interesting that we're still having this conversation, you know, 200 years later, where it's like, oh, yeah, don't worry about raising your own food. You know, there are experts who can take care of that for you. <laughs> you know, instead, build this factory. You know, you'll be good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so part of the, the negative side of that is a lack of knowledge, a loss of knowledge, a loss of skill, and sort of separation uh, from any sort of control over your food system, other than what control you have through purchasing power. Uh, but um, it was also interesting that this ability to not have to uh, do any sort of agricultural work was increasingly tied uh, to class, and it was seen as a class marker. And so if you did not have sort of um, livestock in your house, if you weren't involved in your own food production, then that was seen as sort of you've made it. You're, you're golden. You've made it in like early modern New York. You know? And so food production was increasingly tied then to the lower classes and classes that were actively being discriminated against. There's this... Um, there's this quote uh, from the time period, for example, um, attacking, uh, attacking the recent uh, flush of immigrants from Ireland and likening them to their swine as a way to put, like, to put them down. I'm trying to. I think I know the quote you're talking about. It was from your, uh, you had it in your paper. Shanties in which the pigs and the Patricks lie down together while little ones of Celtic and swinish origin lie miscellaneously with billy goats here and there interposed. So if you could picture it, the, the, the political cartoons of the time, uh, the almost weaponizing this uh, connection to producing foodstuffs as a way to further denigrate, you know, marginalized communities in the cities, and then using uh, these using um, uh, this type of bias as a as a way to uh, further um, harm said communities, and so the the result of tying agricultural production uh, to um, immigrant groups uh, was a push to remove all agricultural production from uh, the context of the city. And so this resulted in the Piggery War of um, 1859, uh, where the upper classes argued that they were like, listen, we have pigs running through New York City. They're just fornicating <laughs> everywhere. You know, this is not something I want to see, you know. I don't want to look out my car my carriage and be like, oh man, <laughs> like, you know. Is and, this the first version of cleaning up Times Square? Pretty much, <laughs> and and so um, it went to the courtroom um, where there was a huge clash between you know the communities that were reliant upon pigs and upper class communities that were like it's dirty. I don't really want to see that. <laughs> and also, it was one of it was a one of the initial land grabs a lot of the facilities for pig raising actually were located around Central Park. 
And that's very expensive real estate. <laughs> and so if we remove the pigs, we can utilize that land for other purposes and actually make a tidy dime off of it too. Right? <laughs> and so there were clashes. The courts finally agreed. It was a big hoo-ha. The courts finally agreed. Yes, pigs shall be removed from New York City. But the the um, immigrant neighborhoods revolted. <laughs> they were like, no, this is our food. This is what we rely upon, especially the women, you know, interestingly enough, because uh, women were uh, focused uh, largely tasked with taking care of the pigs and uh, doing other agricultural tasks. And they were like, absolutely not. So the police had to be called in and they had to forcibly remove pigs from individual houses and break up the um, the caging and whatnot and the pig pens. And so fast forward 2017, I'm reading the New York, uh, uh, the New York Times and they're like, why aren't, why, why is there such vitriol for pot-bellied pigs <laughs> in New York City? Why do people care that I have a pet pot-bellied pig? Um, with, you know, politicians arguing that we should be focusing on other issues, that pot-bellied pigs are really not a big thing. And it's like, well, it's because of all of these policy changes. It's because of this huge outcry that happened 200 years ago that now we're looking at the ordinances on the books and we're like, okay, <laughs> like, you know, having a pig is it's like this big of an offense in New York City. Okay. <laughs> but it's all about undermining food sovereignty and, and the food security of neighborhoods uh, for gain. <laughs> so, so a food sovereignty movement now is trying to regain something that was once possessed and we had this sovereignty mm -hmm. does so there's the question of, of was what was gained um, in this transition to this modern city um, uh, this modern conception of what a city is how it's distinct from the natural world mm -hmm. uh, how uh, what what does regaining food sovereignty mean? Is it, it it's more than I presume bringing back the pigs? Mm -hmm. So could you could you speak to that and help us? You know, what are what are people thinking about today when they're thinking about food sovereignty and and trying to address I suppose these inequities that have uh, been embedded in in kind of the history of the development of the, our very idea of what we think a city is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a very interesting question when we look at what was gained and what was lost, because there were some clear benefits to removing agriculture from uh, urban contexts. First of all, you know, this occurred during the development of the newfangled idea called germ theory, you know, right? So we have changes in, you know, scientific understanding of how diseases are transmitted. Uh, we have a fear uh, from pre-germ theory that odors and um, uh, uh, refuse, et cetera, will directly lead uh, to uh, disease outbreaks. And so there's a cleaning up of the city, a removing of, of livestock, et cetera, from the city, precisely because we wanted to mitigate any sort of disease vectors. And in this time period, uh, fast forward 2020 to 2020 and with everything that 
we're um, sort of shouldering as a larger community trying to handle the impacts of the pandemic. That seems like that wasn't, you know, such a bad idea, you know, <laughs> to get ahead of addressing any sort of, uh, you know, disease transfer. Um, in addition, uh, as the industrial revo revolution sort of pushed people from the fields and placed them and pushed them towards um, doing other types of work, um, agriculture is backbreaking. Uh, it's um, difficult work. And, you know, moving into the city and not having to do that type of work opens you up to do a wide range of other things, right? So we have large populations reliant on an ever-efficient agricultural system to produce our foodstuffs that then frees up, uh, frees up uh, citizens to be able to pursue other paths in life. You don't have to go and work on the farm. You can go be a lawyer or whatever you want to do, artist, you know, yeah. <laughs> journalist, et cetera. And so there were lots of benefits to creating this ever efficient, um, uh, ever becoming more efficient agricultural system. However, people don't come to New York to become farmers. Yeah, exactly. Except for recently, you know. <laughs> However, you know, there's the flip side to that. We've, we've, focused on the positives for such a long time. And then we're like, oh, well, there actually are some negatives to this, right? Like if you're reliant on another group to provide food for you, then what happens if the, um, what happens if the system breaks down? You know, what happens if the crops fail and now I no longer have the ability to produce my own food, then there's gr greater opportunity for food insecurity. Or and their food, and uh, I'm sorry, the food, the way you were saying before, the, if you're not responsible for the production of your own food, you have to rely on your purchasing power. Mm -hmm. And to the if the limits of your purchasing power are going to limit the amount of food that you can get. And we know that is it is precisely the, uh, the historically um, oppressed and neglected communities that are bearing the brunt of the economic fallout of the pandemic now. So their purchasing power is, is even uh, more limited. Oh yeah, I mean, and that's a great way of putting it. From the piggery of war of 1859 to the pandemic fallout of 2020, what we're seeing is the same thing. The, um, the hardest hit are always you know the the working class and the um marginalized groups and historic and groups that have been historically discriminated against and so what you're basically doing is you're removing a safety net from a community for uh you know uh, with the argument that there will be greater efficiency right and there is greater efficiency for many, but then it comes back to justice. Are the benefits and harms of a of our food system being equally distributed across all groups that make up the United States? Or are historically marginalized groups bearing the brunt of the negative consequences of our industrial food system? What do you think and what would a food sovereignty movement um, look like to you that would be effective and, and 
that would fit with our moment. Um, so there's, you hear a lot of talk about ver vertical farming, using available rooftops for agricultural purposes, but you touched on it a, a bit before, but the, the idea of reintroducing livestock to the city, particularly in the wake of the pandemic and, the, and concerns about um, um, transmission of disease um, from animals to humans, um, I can, that would seemingly be, there are many more obstacles to that. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what does, what does a reasonable but necessary conception of food sovereignty, what does it look like in 2021? That is a wonderful question. And I think that first we need to accept the fact that the industrial food system is not going away anytime soon. Um, agriculture is, I would say, one of, if not the most successful industries of the United States. We produce more food in the Midwest alone. Uh, we pr produce enough food in the Midwest alone to feed uh, the entire world. I mean, we can produce a lot of food very quickly. Um, however, with that being said, we do need to address the problematic distribution of benefits and harms. So that means reinstituting or rebuilding the safety net that communities have uh, to help protect them against um, food insecurity. And so that might not mean the reintroduction of pigs running down, you know, <laughs> running down Manhattan, right? Like, you know, <laughs> however, um, it could mean, you know, providing communities with greater food sovereignty so that they can start or um, support um, with, um, with um, help from the city and whatnot, uh, small scale um, integrated farming operations. So urban agriculture um, initiatives that are oftentimes in, in oft used um, areas of the city, be that um, lots that we're not utilizing or the land under overpasses or whatnot. But it's also about um, connecting to our local uh, food system, which includes more than simply uh, New York City proper, but it's it includes what's been traditionally called the charmed circle. And we've or the manured quote unquote <laughs> regions and charmed circle manured regions i prefer charmed circle honestly okay, we'll go with that it's it's this idea that there's uh, about a 50 um, mile circle around cities at least before refrigeration uh, where a lot of our agricultural production would occur, especially for non-delicate crops like um, potatoes, for example, that could easily be, be um, you know, transported into the city. And we largely did away with a lot of these with the advent of refrigeration and then the greater um, push towards efficiency in agriculture. And I agree that efficiency is important, but the charmed circle also um, acted as a safety net for you know for growing cityscapes so that way you do have close by access to foodstuffs in addition temporarily removing ordinances against agriculture in the city has historically been a way uh, to address food insecurity so for example 
there was the potato patch institute um the potato patch incident in detroit say that again three times <laughs> <laughs> uh, where um detroit was hard hit by the great depression uh, food insecurity rose drastically um, in this area uh, so what the mayor decided to do was open up large plots of land outside of Detroit for potato production. And any citizen living in Detroit at the time could um, take part in this where they helped produce the potatoes and then also received a portion um, of the produce. And this was an, an area where, uh, at least prior to this, no agriculture was being allowed because, you know, greater um, industrialization in that area and, and land is expensive. Let's get real in a, in a cityscape, right? <laughs> <You know? clears> but this helped uh, to ensure that uh, vulnerable populations in Detroit actually had access to food while uh, they were going through the Great Depression. It was then subsequently removed um, as industrial agriculture, um, once again, as people had jobs, right, and could once again purchase uh, foodstuffs. So we, in addition to permanent measures, we should, could also think about temporary measures uh, that would help provide uh, communities um, access uh, to food as well. Although with New York, again, I'm, I'm trying to think where <laughs> where the land would, what land would be opened up, right? <laughs> well, as people have spoken quite a bit about, as I say, rooftops and uh, vacant lots, trying to utilize as much as possible any, any available space that is not being um, used for commercial purposes. I, I would like to get to, um, to hear you speak about uh, the significance of the cultural appropriateness of food in relation to food sovereignty. That is a, a something else that people have been speaking quite a bit about. Um, and it, it seems that this is an important element in the idea of um, reclaiming food sovereignty, that, that the food is reflective of the values, the identity of the people in the particular communities that we're talking about. So could you speak speak to that, please? Oh, most definitely. And, and that's actually one of the main tensions between, uh, that we see between food security and, foods, and food, a sovereignty or food justice conceptions of food. So, Food security initiatives, when you're trying to ensure that populations have access to enough nutrition, you know, to meet their daily um, needs, um, oftentimes think of food as interchangeable. You know, this particular product is 300 calories and this particular product is also 300 calories. But as long as we're getting the food, like enough food to people, then we've ensured that food security um, is achieved, and then we can go home, and everything's good, right? <laughs> you know? However, uh, food as sovereignty movements uh, oftentimes find um, they're critical of this sort of myopic, uh, one-sided view of food, 
because for food justice movements, for especially for food security movements, food is more than simply a product uh, that is traded um, on the market or that is interchangeable. Uh, food is deeply connected to identity, deeply connected to community. And so just think back to um, going to your um, family's house for Thanksgiving or some sort of major holiday. Uh, there are certain food items uh, that um, sort of are indicative of your cultural and historical past that bring people together and, and current, um, uh, current cultural and historical uh, uh, makeup. And so by shifting control out of individual communities, uh, we are taking away uh, their ability in some contexts to be able to pass on and reinforce cultural identity. And so we see this in uh, Michigan, for example. In upstate Michigan, it's called the UP, the Upper Peninsula. Um, there um, is an area that was a site of uh, mining and the mining operations negatively impacted uh, the streams in that area, which in turn negatively impacted the fish. And so salmon that was once able to be ingested was no longer able to be ingested unless you wanted long-term health impacts. And so uh, the Potawatomi tribe was provided canned salmon as a replacement for the salmon associated uh, with the various riverways. And this from a food security perspective was seen as acceptable. You're taking one salmon product and you're even replacing it with another salmon product, right? It's, it's not even like trout or <laughs> you're replacing it with like whitefish or something. You mm -hmm. know? <laughs> However, this was highly problematic uh, from a food sovereignty perspective. Uh, because the fish of that particular region was very important to maintaining cultural identity. And so by saying, hey, no worries, we'll just replace, you know, your salmon with canned salmon and all's good, um, that it was like, no, <laughs> this is not the same salmon, you know. And anyone who's done salmon fishing in upstate New York, for example, knows that there's a, quite a bit of a difference between salmon from New York versus salmon from the Pacific Northwest versus Michigan salmon, right? And so, and, and so this idea that greater food sovereignty, greater control over your food stuff, stuffs can also help repair and protect uh, cultural identity is key uh, to uh, food sovereignty and food justice in the United States. Okay, so thank you. That, that that helps kind of broaden this picture. We've got we've got a crisis here of of food insecurity, and that we have to deal with the kind of the, the material value of food as a good for our survival. Mm -hmm. um, but we want to achieve that. But we want to go further. Uh, we can have this food sovereignty that seems to be this this deeper ideal that that recognizes food as much more than just this material good, but as as a as a cultural value, as as something very much tied up with who we conceive ourselves to be, and so giving communities sovereignty 
over not only the food that they have access to and the, and the food that they can ingest, but giving them sovereignty over, in a sense, who they are. Kind of, so food and sense of self are, seem to be intimately connected here. Yes, very, that's very well put. And I, I completely agree. And, and this is not to say that food security is not important for food sovereignty and food justice movements. Food, secu food security is very important for this. But there's also this recognition that there are other justice issues uh, that we need to you know, uh, face. And there, there are other important aspects of food that we should recognize as a society. And uh, this sort of pushes back against the arguments against local food, right? Um, the idea that, oh, well, local food um, initiatives are inefficient. And so they're not going to produce the calor enough calories uh, for our communities, you know, to um, meet their food security needs or their dietary needs. Um, but if we look at food in this more robust way, uh, then local food movements don't need to. They, they don't need to produce enough food to replace the industrial um, agricultural system. They need to, one, act as a safety net or, you know, against failures of the industrial um, agricultural system. And two, it can be used to help ensure that all of these other components of food are recognized and honored and available to our citizenship. Thank you. I think that's a great way to uh, end this conversation. This has been an extraordinary helpful. It's been an enjoyable conversation. I've learned uh, quite a lot about the history of, uh, of, of food production here in New York. Um, Dr. Samantha Noll, this is, thank you very much. It's been, it's been a pleasure and uh, hopefully we can have you back on Fire New York. Thank you for having me very much. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Welcome, Stephen Grimaldi, to Fire New York. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, maybe you could start by introducing yourself uh, to the audience, uh, telling us a bit about you and how you got to be uh, where you are today with uh, New York Common Pantry. Sure. So, well, I joined New York Common Pantry in 2008, but I think probably the story starts um, far, far further back than that. I, you know, my, my, uh, growing up, my father was very interested in uh, civil rights issues, um, and saw, um, justice and, um, you know, um, issues of poverty as part and outgrowth of the civil rights movement. And that was a big, um, it had huge impact in my life. So that was something that, um, we, you know, talked about often. And, and then, you know, when I was a young person, um, we, we, uh, went to soup kitchens, uh, we volunteered one Thanksgiving on the Bowery. I remember driving into the city. I grew up, um, in a town called Central Islip on Long Island. So that was a, at the time, a uh, you know, uh, you know, relatively lower, I would say lower middle-class, uh, town, but there was some poverty there. And so we had this experience growing up, 
Um, um, and I think it really shaped who I was. And my, my dad definitely shaped that. Um, later on, sadly, um, my father, um, we all fell on some hard times. My father's um, uh, position changed and um, got to experience what it was like to receive you know, reduced lunch in school. And then um, later on, after my father had passed away, my mother had to move. I moved in with some friends. And for a short period of time, I was on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It was formerly called Food Stamps uh, back then. Um, so, um, yeah, so having that experience of coming from a, uh, you know, a, a fighting for justice and for others and then being in that situation and seeing it and experiencing it and knowing what it was like, those were really two very, very important things in my life um, that really shaped who I am. So this is in many ways kind of a, a personal uh, aspect to your work at the Common Pantry. Um, so how did you how did you get to um, the Common Pantry? And I guess following up on what you were just saying, you know, how does that how does that experience influence um, how you approach your work at the Common Pantry? Yeah. So, you know, I, after, after I went to university, uh, took some time off, went back to social work school, first year of placement in social work school, you have two years of, of internships, unpaid internships usually. And I was placed at the Yorkville Common Pantry, which is actually the predecessor to the New York Common Pantry. We rebranded in 2012, but in 1995, I was an intern there. Many years I returned back to the very, very site that I was my first year internship. So it's kind of an interesting uh, story. And um, I think um, to to be clear, I, I do think you're right. There is a personal aspect to this work, and I think that that has helped guide uh, my work and helps inform what I do. Um, and then you couple that with um, you know my social welfare uh, background, as far as you know, on, the academic experience and looking at it from from uh, how do we provide you know better systems. How do we provide effective and impactful service and do it efficiently? Those are the sort of the business operations side that I really enjoy and have enjoyed um, since I went to school for it. And then understanding the policy implications of what we do and the political implications of what we do and how this work is embedded in that context is something I also enjoy. Um, or, or at the very least, appreciate it. I, don't, I can't. I can't say I always enjoy it because <laughs> it's 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 uh, not always enjoyable um, objectively. But I think that's um, those are some of the uh, some of the ways that it informs the work I do. What it, what's the the state of affairs right now from your perspective at the Common Pantry uh, in terms of? Um, the work that you're doing, the situation in the city with respect to um, the food crisis. So statistics that I have encountered, I have heard from various sources, um, there's um, perhaps 1.5 million uh, New Yorkers who are experiencing food insecurity, um, maybe one in three children who are experiencing it. Uh, I recently heard um, the statistic um, that there could be over 250% increase in the use of food pantries. Uh, is this, does this sound right to you? Is this the, what you've been experiencing over the past 12, 13, 14 months? 
<laughs> how long you have, you know, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's been an unbelievable 14 or 15, uh, 13 or 14 months. It's been, um, just the way we've had to change the way we do operations, the way we need to get services and food to the people. Uh, we've done a lot of mobile services, a lot of work, of course, from our brick and mortar locations as well. Um, the numbers that you cited are, are on par. You have to also put in context, you know, in the first two months of the pandemic, that number went up to 2.2 million food secure, insecure uh, New Yorkers, uh, according to um, the mayor's office. Um, I have heard recent numbers that had dropped down to 2 million. I hope you're right that it's 1.5. I, my sense is that it's probably, um, you know, it, it, it's higher than it was before, without a doubt. Uh, we had really felt um, at the pantry and as well as in the emergency food network that before the pandemic, we had been very, very successful at dropping that number down, despite the fact that that number was at 1.2 million. Now people might say, what kind of success is that? Well, it used to be about 1.4, 1.5, you know, six or seven years ago, through a combination of different programs and work that we did. Um, and we, we feel like there, there, there was, there was some, some success and some impact that we were making. Um, however, you know, this is the cycle. This is the constant cycle. Um, we saw this after the crash in 2008, 2009, Sandy uh, snap cuts, you know, in 13, uh, 14. The, the impact of these things always create these punctuations. There's this sort of flat line and then there are moments. And those, these sort of crisis points really uh, tilt the scales. And it's time and time again when, you know, we at at the emergency food network see, um, especially in New York Common Pantry where we have multiple sites, we start to see um, people come and that, that number just stays at that high level. And it takes us quite some time to get, to get it back down again. And that's what happened during the pandemic. Um, but unlike other challenges and other crises, this one was far different. Um, first and foremost, Let's use Superstorm Sandy as an example. That impacted certain geographical communities. Many of our staff did not live, and our volunteers did not live in those communities. We were able to take staff who didn't live in those communities and to help by bridging gaps and bringing food and resources to those communities, helping nonprofits who were in those communities because we had those resources. In this case, everyone was impacted. Everyone was at risk of getting you know, COVID, and everyone was almost everyone was really scared. <laughs> um, and there was a shortage of PPE. And then there was, you know, do we bring people into the building? Then overnight our volunteers stopped coming. And, and then, you know, what did we do with staff? And we had to stagger shifts to ensure that people would not, if they, we did uh, get exposed, people uh, did get the virus, that they didn't impact the entire staffing pattern. So that we, we, we staggered shifts so that people were working together so that we could then just isolate people and then move other shifts into cover for them. And we had a, a third team ready to go. So it was a real sort of, you know, business, a sort of sustainability kind of uh, model that we put in place. And, you know, we, we had to do what we had to do, but at the same time, it really, um, as you can imagine, was quite stressful. Um, so you had all of that going on at the same time while you started to see, and at the beginning when the national news had people and cars lined up, and you probably remember those images on highways and roads just yes. waiting to get food at food banks. There were, you know, millions of New Yorkers who were, um, you know, uh, self-isolating, who were, um, 
you know, not coming out who needed this food. And it was, it was sort of a delayed reaction. It was a sort of, you know, uh, uh, where people eventually just could not handle it anymore. And the city did as, as well as it could, it, you know, had a get food program and obviously the pantry stepped up as well, but it was really, really challenging and remains challenging. But at, in those early months and at first, I would say, I would say five or six months, it was very, very challenging. For, to get food and to get the services out to the people. Um, but we created mobile programming vehicles. We converted our food rescue operations. These are drivers who go and get food that would otherwise, perfectly good food, by the way, that would normally get thrown away, whether that's at the markets, Hunts Point Market or other places, restaurants and supermarkets. Taking that food, we, we sort of redeployed them to get food to people in their homes in some cases, at uh, community centers, at schools, uh, faith-based organizations, elected officials' offices, wherever we could go, wherever we were welcome to get food to uh, food insecure neighborhoods, especially um, neighborhoods that were already food insecure but were really hit hard by the pandemic. Quite challenging. So. It sounds quite an extraordinary effort. Um, you should be applauded for it. And how did you fare? Uh, your your organization fare physically? So clearly you. You were speaking to the emotional and the, the psychological stress, but how, how did you how did you do physically in terms of people getting sick? Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, we because we staggered the shifts and because we we deployed our because we we moved our services outdoors, um, and that was hard during the winter months, of course, because it's obviously very very cold or rain with all sorts of weather. But we decided that was the way we we're going to operate. So we got tents a lot of those services in that way, um, we had a very, very low transmission rate. So I'm happy to say that very few people did um, were infected. Those people that were um, recovered, um, everyone recovered. Um, and, you know, we, we followed all the protocols to make sure people stayed at home. Anyone that may have been exposed to that person, we told them to stay home um, as a precaution. Um, and we kind of went out as far as we could to understand how they may have been affected just to take no chances. Um, and so I think we're lucky. I think we're also, um, you know, tactful um, or tactical, excuse me, um, about how we did it. And, and so we're, we've been lucky so far. And now with people, more people being vaccinated, um, we hope to see light at the end of the tunnel. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I'd like to go back to the the point you were making about kind of uh, these very the, the cyclical nature in some way perhaps that was the word that you were using in terms of the you, had, you mentioned the great recession you mentioned superstorm sandy um now the pandemic distinct though it is in its various ways but that you've had these spikes um and I'm not sure if, if this was what you said, but when, when you kind of work your way down, are you at a higher level than you were before? So, you know, you've got these kind of spikes and then you come down. But are, have you been, say, from 1995, your experience there, have you been kind of on a generally upward trajectory, though? So that the... Yeah. Yes, it's a good question. So, yeah, you know... There's a couple, the answer is yes, we are on an upward trajectory. Some of that is because we have taken on um, an entirely new program with our senior population. We call it Nourish, it's the Commodity Supplemental Food Program. 
Um, and basically that serves about 3 million meals a year to low-income seniors who are SNAP eligible. We have, you know, uh, full operation and full tilt, about 105 sites that we go to throughout the city. If you take that away, because that's a relatively new program, that's about seven or eight years. But if you go back 10 or 11 years and you go apples to apples, we are, I was at 1.4 million meals or we were at 1.4 million meals served at that point. If you take out the 3 million meals, we're about you know 3.2. So we're more than half. That was last year. This year we're on pace to serve somewhere about about one and a half million more meals than last year because of the pandemic, because of the amount of food that we're giving, because of the need, because we want to minimize the social, um, the, you know, the, the possibility of transmitting the virus and the distancing, and we want to min minimize the number of visits. Um, so you factor all that in and you're you're at a significant impact somewhere between 20 and 25 percent increase um, in food delivered um, and distributed so this growth these so in the one sense you're 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 providing more food you're servicing more people you're taking on uh more work you know your your programs are expanding and i'd, I'd like to hear you speak to that I mean, kind of the short question is why i mean clearly there's there's a need and but i'd like you to speak about this perhaps kind of uh, within the whole historical context of of your work of the common pantry's work um to what extent in the last um uh, 15 20 25 years that you've been there has has the wider situation that you've been responding to worsened? To what degree has your mission changed? And it, and I'd like really for you to expand on the mission. I, on you know on the website, the mission um, New York Common Pantry reduces hunger and promotes dignity, health, and self sufficiency. Was this the original? Um, mission or has the mission evolved over time? It has evolved over time. Absolutely. We added health to our, to our mission. Um, uh, a few years ago, we were very committed, you know, this, this gets to the issue. Um, really it's not just about health. Um, and there's these words, nutrition that you always hear, it gets deep to what we consider, you know, food, justice because it's about access and access to healthy fresh food is part of our mission around justice so when we add so yes the answer is we have evolved our mission statement because we've evolved our programming as we evolved our understanding of the challenges that are before us and before the people that we serve um, you know new york is an expensive very expensive place to live as you know the cost of living is never seems to go down, always seems to go up. Um, and for many, many years, you know, the, the, uh, the minimum wage and the wages have not kept up. And so as a result, there's more and more, there's bigger, there's more gaps for people. And what we find time and time again is that people cut corners on food. They either skip meals skip, or the quality of the meals go down. Someone in their family doesn't eat. Usually it's the parents if they have children, so they're feeding their children and not themselves. 
if productivity goes down or if the children aren't eating as well, then of course um, they go to school, they don't learn as well. There's all sorts of uh, studies to, to show these connections and the interconnectivity, but it's access to healthy, fresh food that makes a difference. It's the most expensive food, uh, generally speaking. And as a result, those are the things that get cut. So we have really worked to provide, to make health part of our mission, to help people not only get food that we distribute, but help people get access to uh, community-supported agriculture, for example, CSA shares. Uh, traditionally, low-income people have been locked out of that, something that is the, almost like the rite of passage to to the to the you know middle class and upper middle class people love CSAs um, and all those vegetables buying farm shares it supports the farmer it's a win-win people get their fresh food they get it guaranteed but low-income folks have not been able to do that so being able to provide that sort of service connect through our food MD program to hospitals to work with medical centers and doctors to, to make referrals to pantries so low-income people who come with other comorbidities and have other health-related issues that they can stop the, the clock, if you will, and start to eat healthier by being referred to us. So we've really tried to focus on understanding the health and the medical connections to the work that we do. And that's really where I think our work has evolved. Okay, so that, that kind of speaks to um, a way of understanding kind of the work of food pantries, of food banks, um, and how they have changed. There, there was a, a view, I suppose, kind of the more traditional model was that um, such organizations were kind of uh, an emergency stopgap measure. So we have our system of food distribution and people and and some people fall through the cracks or some people fall on hard times. They have limited access um, to food. And so you have food pantries there for people um, to kind of bridge the gap, so to speak, to be helped out. So it's emergency kind of relief. Um, but what you're describing in your own organization and seems to be happening in many others is that the work expands to take on these issues of justice, that, that it becomes kind of a more of an ethical effort and endeavor that you are engaged in rather than one of kind of uh, efficiency. It's dealing with kind of an inefficiency in the food distribution network. Here you're actually doing justice work. Um, it, is that your experience? And um, I guess I want to know what your views are about how this has come to be. Um, you, your organization has gotten awards. Um, the uh, New York Community Trust uh, Nonprofit Excellence Award for Overall Management Excellence. This is this is wonderful for your organization and speaks uh, to your leadership. Um, but does it not also speak to an evolving kind of ethical crisis? Well, I think the fact that we have food insecurity and we have this uh, issue of, you know, um, such such huge disparities um, in health outcomes um, and access to healthy food and other resources is is a, a crisis, um, an ethical crisis without a doubt. I think that 
it's not too dissimilar from the ethical crisis that's formed that started uh, that helped form organizations like ours back in 1980. Um, really, it was a devolution of government responsibility. Right, it was a sort of moving away from responsibility and saying that you know the faith community, which was largely who was responding at the time, and in some cases to these days still responding to. Um, issues of food insecurity because it's a some it's a place where and this is where I think there's hope um, in, in that um, it's a place where everyone can join. Um, people say you know people should not be hungry in a place like New York City in a country like ours. People shouldn't be hungry and people from all walks of life and all political backgrounds and all beliefs um, will generally agree on that, although we're more bifurcated, I think, than ever in, in some of that those conversations. So I don't think it's necessarily different than what happened then. I just think the problem has gotten so much bigger. And we've also learned a lot more about what emergency food organizations and, and supplemental food organizations, poverty fighting organizations, social service organizations like the New York Common Pantry, we're all those things in one now. We were not before. We were just a food distributor. And we've learned, we've evolved, we've grown. And <clears throat> to your point, we've had to be as efficient and as effective as possible. And of course, you would hope that we would be as efficient and as effective as possible, but sometimes we're doing things and for many years on an absolute shoestring budget, cutting back on certain things. People want to give for food. They don't want to, they don't care about keeping the lights on or paying your insurance, your liability insurance. Of course, you've got volunteers that come. Someone slips on a banana, they could sue you, right? <laughs> no one no one wants to think about those things of running a business. Um, so there's all of these things that go in into the work that we do that I think, um, you know, most um, take for granted, but I think it's, it's part of it. And justice is absolutely core and central to what to what we do and motivates me and inspires what I do. Justice as fairness is um, is uh, fundamental to you know my belief system, and I think is I, I hope to that I, I'm able to on a daily basis infuse that in the work I do. I know many of the people that work for us, incredible staff across multiple programs, care deeply about justice and fairness, and that's what keeps us working, and keeps us motivated, and keeps us waking up in the morning and doing this work. Well, thank you uh, for for that uh, response and and. I wish you success in continuing this work. I can't help but ask whether your conception of justice as fairness, uh, which certainly the philosophical listeners will recognize uh, from the philosopher John Rawls, um, but um, would a more would a more just society require the is there a place for the New York Common Pantry in that? Are you so clearly you are working towards addressing some injustice. You're you're addressing problems that you're that you are you you recognize. Can we get to a point where there isn't a need for the New York Common Pantry, or is that? Or do you think of this as something very central that you want organizations like this, that these are, will always be necessary and that is not maybe necessarily a bad thing? Right. It's a great question. You know, I, we would love to put ourselves out of business. I know that sounds empty, um, but it, it's truly 
our goal. It's what we want to do. It would be fantastic if we could come with some level um, of sort of, you know, basic economic security for folks where they didn't need to spend hours very impractically, if you don't mind me saying so, you know, ordering food from food pantries and coming to soup kitchens to get their food. We help people with resources. Last year, we brought in over $7 million in, in emergency uh, funding for people, uh, SNAP benefits and other benefits. Um, if there was greater access to that, um, you know, one thing that the pandemic has allowed us to do to see that SNAP benefits have been, have been given a spike, um, you know, um, an extra, uh, you know, 85 or $95 per month. Um, that's very, very helpful. Um, other resources like pandemic EBT, these are government benefits in ways that government can make a difference. So, you know, if, this is obviously incredibly controversial for some who believe that, you know, if we're going to do something, we do it just in the form of food. But food helps move the dial. But food is a is about diversi diversifying your portfolio. Food is about getting filling those gaps because the SNAP benefit only gives you two months worth of resources. Now, if you've got a job on top of that and you're challenging, they, 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 they change what you're making. It's all based on your income. So there's just a certain level that people can uh, get to. In my estimation, that's not justice. You know, having to have a second job by going you know, to a pantry um, and spend time doing that is not necessarily just or, or fair. Um, and that so it would be great to see more um, of that. And it would be great to be able to, to not have us provide the level of service. I do think there's going, always going to be a level, uh, a role for organizations like the New York Common Pantry. Um, um, so I think we will have some role, but it would be great if we could diminish that role somehow by having more intervention um, at the public level. Um, at the government level where we could have some sort of basic level of income that would allow people to, um, you know, not have to worry where their next meal is coming from so they could focus on some of the other things that we all take for granted. So would that be a, a message that you would have for um, our next mayor, uh, something that you'd uh, like to see? Certainly, I, I think it's a message for all elected officials. I think the, the city council has gotten um, their eyes open quite wide um, during this pandemic. And we've partnered with many city council members and understanding and they are um, just, we've been able to share that, you know, food insecurity existed before this pandemic and it will exist in your neighborhoods as well, especially those folks who are new to, to their, um, you know, to their positions. So it's about, everything uh, up the chain, um, including, of course, the mayor. Uh, there's an office of uh, food policy uh, at the mayor's level. Um, they're committed to think about innovative ways to address, um, to address food insecurity, um, looking at certain neighborhoods and looking at different data. I am hopeful and inspired by that. I'm hoping that that moves the dial. Um, it helps bring organizations like the New York Common Pantry and other organizations together to think about this as a group, I'm also hopeful because it's collaborative and not competitive. Uh, we need to work together to not duplicate. So I think this is a really a good opportunity, but in a short time, we'll have another mayor. At what degree will this next mayor continue 
uh, that work um, and improve on that work because there's always improvement. There certainly can be more done in this way. So I'm hopeful, uh, but uh, you know, skeptically hopeful. If that's such a, <laughs> if I can use such dichotomous terms, <laughs> you certainly can here. Um, and on the on the note of hopefulness. Um, we can end and, and I can say thank you very, very much, Stephen Grimaldi, for joining us and for sharing uh, your thoughts. And I, I wish you um, success and I, I hope that you get the success of being less needed. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that'll do it for this week's episode. I'd like to hear what you think. Reach out to me on Twitter at J.S. Beale or on the Gotham Philosophical Society's Twitter handle at PhilosophyNYC. You could also reach me via email at podcast at philosophy.nyc. Thank you for listening and join us next week. Mm-hmm.